0: Well, good evening. We're all um, so well-trained to get here right at the, <laughs> the start. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into um, Revelation chapter 9 tonight. Uh, Father, we look to you this evening again and ask you that you give us grace as we, as we uh, look at this book. There are so many aspects of the book of Revelation that are difficult to grab a hold of, to understand. To see how everything fits together, oh Lord, we thank you that uh, your spirit, though, is able to open our eyes and teach us, and we just pray for grace, and and uh, we tell you, Lord, that we have a heart to want to be ready and prepared for whatever you have for us, uh, and we really take it seriously that this is indeed your word, and that you gave it to us so that we could be ready for what is going to be coming. So we just pray for your grace tonight, and greater and greater understanding as we I really value your word as we study your word, as we look to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The first thing I wanted to, to touch on before we jump into the actual chapter tonight is did all of you get the numbers handout? Should have been available there. I wanted to touch on this just a little bit. I have another list of numbers. It's a little bit more extensive than this. I just cannot find it. Uh, and so I I went online, and um, this was one of the better lists uh, related to numbers. And it's only better because it includes a lot of the Bible references that prove that those numbers do indeed have meanings like that. But in the Bible, as many of you know, uh, numbers have significance. A lot of numbers do not always, but a lot of numbers have significance. Uh, in addition to that, in the Bible, colors have significance, and so do materials like metals. Uh, for example, bronze is the metal of judgment in the Bible. It's it's when it's ever mentioned bronze, it's almost every time related to some some kind of a judgment or whatever, gold would be the color of royalty, or I mean the uh, metal of royalty. So there are some hints in that. And then when you get to numbers, there are just a lot of interesting things about numbers. Some have... Kind of devoted their lives to studying some of this. Uh, What's interesting is that every word in the Hebrew language has a number associated with it. There are numbers associated with the letters, and oftentimes those come together to form some very interesting ways of telling stories in the Bible, even uh, that it's intentional. Uh, I came across an example of one of those about two weeks ago where my commentary said, This is a deliberate use of of replacing the name with or the numbers with the names so that people would get this point, a particular point. So numbers do indeed have significance. Of course, in the book of Revelation, there are all kinds of numbers. And so when we understand what those numbers mean, it really ha- should help with the interpretation. So we all know, for example, seven is the divine number. Uh, the number when God rested, it's a week long. It's a number of finality and everything else as well. But it's God's number. And so, and the number for completion, 10 is as well. But that's significant because you end up with seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. And that's all intentional. And it's supposed to show that it's a complete judgment. It's 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 the full judgment pouring out of God's wrath upon the world, and it's intentional, to, to put it that way. The number of the Antichrist is the number um, 666, of course, and 6 is the, the number for humanity. And, so, and it's based on the idea that, God, that uh, God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, and so that's, that's man's number, and it comes right next to 7, which is God's number. Now, in the book of Revelation, you read about this Antichrist figure that wants everyone to get a number on their hand or forehead, 666. It's really representing an unholy trinity. Sometimes people have wondered before, by the way, if they get some kind of a mark on their hand or forehead, does that mean that you're doomed for an eternity separated from God? Well, if it is the mark of the beast, the answer is yes. The book of Revelation, it says anyone who gets the mark of the beast will spend an eternity in hell. It's it's very, very explicit, but not every mark that someone would get is the mark of the beast. And I think it's very significant that this particular mark everyone will know represents aligning yourself with the Antichrist. It's gonna be very, very deliberate. To say no to the mark is going to be to say no to the Antichrist, and that's why you won't be able to buy or sell unless you get the mark. It's it's a sign of allegiance. Now, what's interesting about 666 is that it also represents an unholy trinity that takes place in the second half of the book of Revelation. So, Lord willing, when we get to that in the fall, you'll see that just like there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's an unholy version of this in the end times. Uh, And You've got Satan as one of the the figures. You've got this Antichrist. And then you've got the false prophet and, and the, the Antichrist is, uh, you, you'll read about it, him getting a wound from which he dies, and then he comes back to life again. It sounds like Jesus. It's anti, opposed to Christ. And so you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we worship, and then you've got an unholy version of this, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet that represents the Holy Spirit, and they're competing for the allegiance of the entire world and of course that allegiance is ultimately worshiping humanity 666 and so this antichrist is going to declare himself to be god and this is in the book of daniel it's also in the book of revelation that he's going to declare himself to be god and expect worship as a man he's going to be possessed by the devil when he does that, and here we come back to the original sin in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve said, we want to be gods, we want to be like God. And they ate from the tree. And so that's where, the, that's where all of this is going, setting up a competing system that's going to lead to God judging the entire world and all of humanity because of their complete rebellion and turning away from, from Christ and his ways. But that's the second half of the book, Things get kind of interesting after you get to chapter 12 and you'll have to wait for the fall. I did want you to glance at this though because this does have a lot of the numbers and the significance of some of those numbers. The number one is uh, the number for uh, union and oneness and of course the place where it's most significant is here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's one God. <clears throat> and, um, and it represents uh, this unity, this oneness of God then two is the number for companionship but also the number for witness what that means is that a matter had to be confirmed with two witnesses for it to stand up in a court of law you could not indict someone based on one witness it requires two now this was significant when Jesus was walking the earth because they said about Jesus that we don't believe you because you're only speaking about yourself in other words, you're only testifying about yourself. Where are your witnesses? And Jesus said, well, I've got two more. He said, my miracles testify uh, to the truth of my identity. But he said, also, if you listen to God, the Father, you'd realize he also is speaking about me. Moses talked about me and others talked about me. And so, but it, it's, the, it's the number of witness. Three is the number of uh, divine design, but it's also... Um, um, uh, it's, a, it's another number for completion. It, it's kind of like um, a chair with the three legs or whatever. There are a lot of things that are illustrated with this number three that show a completeness. Now, 10 is, again, a number of completion, and so is seven. So some of these have some double meanings there. But you have a bunch of examples where the number three is used for various reasons. The number four have to do a creation. It calls it here the creative works, but it's really the, the creation of God. The number four is a picture of that. So you've got the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, uh, the four phases of the moon, the four winds of the heavens. All of this is showing all of creation. When it's used, oftentimes, that's the significance of the number four. Five is the, a number of weakness or he, um, man's limitations. Uh, and also the number for death. You can read those examples. Six, of course, as I already mentioned, is the number of mankind or people. We were created on the sixth day, and it's one day short of the seventh day, which is the number of divinity. And again, I think this is what goes wrong in terms of the end times. It's humanity trying to Exalt itself to be God. Then number seven, of course, is God's number, but it's also the number of perfection and completion. Um, and there are lots of sevens in the Bible. Eight is the number of new beginnings. Of course, eighth, the eighth day of the week, which there's no such thing, but it's the first day of the new week. And so it's the start of the, the new, new thing when you get to eight. And it's a it's a number for regeneration. And again, you look at these examples and you'll, you'll see how that kind of fits together. Nine, uh, finality in faith. Um, I'm not sure about that one, although you can see like the nine gifts of the spirits, the nine Beatitudes. Uh, it, again, seems to be a picture, a little bit of a final list and it's related to faith. 10 is again, the completion of the divine order. There are a lot of 10s in the Bible. Uh, 12 is the number for government. So you got the 12 apostles in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the 12 uh, sons of Israel in the Old Testament. You got the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And then when you get to Revelation, you read about the 24 thrones. And all of this is a picture of, um, of government and ruling and judging and some of those things. So you can look at those ones as well. 40 is the number for trials. Of course, Jesus was tempted for 40 days. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. A lot of different examples here. Uh, 40, some people when they do a partial type of fast, will do it for 40 days, just go through this whole period here of just refinement for 40 days. Maybe some of you have heard things like 40 days of prayer or 40 days of this or 40 days of that. It's, it's kind of a completion uh, through testing. And then uh, 70 uh, in the Bible is used in a variety of different places, and it, it is the combination of seven times 10, and there are, again, examples like that. Obviously, when you get to Revelation, you've got uh, t- 12, which is the number of government, times uh, 10,000, or I'm sorry, 12,000, 144,000 Jews. Those numbers, I think, are intentional. And I take them as literal numbers. Others think they're symbolic. Some people, for example, on the number 1,000, the word, uh, the number 1,000 is used in the Bible as a number for a, um, in, infinity or large number. Sometimes the, the, the word 1,000 just means a large number and they just throw out 1,000. Uh, I tend to take it literally when it says Jesus is going to reign for a 1,000 years. I think unless there's another reason not to believe it's literal, I take that as literal. So I hope this is a little helpful. There are other things online. If I could find this other list, it had uh, like 25 numbers, not just the ones that are here. And some of them are kind of interesting that I'd never seen on any other list before. So if I find that, I'd like to... um, I'd like to make that available as well. It's real old. It's like typed with an old typewriter, probably from the 1950s or something. But it was kind of interesting. Yeah, Terry. Some of these didn't print on both sides. They did not print on both sides. Most did. Okay. Okay, good. So thank you. So if you got one that didn't print on both sides, with why, who knows? But um, grab a different one on the way out. Um, maybe you got stuck with the six 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 one, one, and then I don't know <laughs> what to do with you there. <laughs> You're supposed to have seven pages, you only got six. I don't know what that means, no. <laughs> All right, um, now as we jump into tonight, I need to set a speck of the context for chapter nine. This is a little bit shorter chapter, so I'm not sure how long this will go, but we, let's start on page 17 in your book because I want to um, give you a little bit, again, the context of where we are with all of this. I should have brought my, I have a little light thing and I didn't bring that either. But just to get a picture of the entire book of Revelation, and I meant to show this again last week, you've got on the left there, Revelation chapters one through three that again, I think represent the church age. And I think that's where we are today. Then Revelation chapters four and five, you have a pause in heaven. We get a glimpse of what's happening in heaven and you get this clear sense that God is getting ready to do something. And many times the pause in heaven is a way of justifying what God's about to do to demonstrate that he's holy and just uh, in what he's about to do. But those are chapters four and five. And so really chapters one through five, are kind of where we are now, although that pause in heaven, that'll happen in the future. We just won't be aware of it when it's happening. Now, some put the rapture right there. And so you see rapture with the question mark. Others put the rapture either in the middle of the whole chart there, and others put it later. Uh, I, I tend to put it on, on the later spot, but it could be earlier. We pray for the earlier, we prepare for the later. Um, then the next sections, the next two sections are a seven-year period of time, and um, both from the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, we read that there'll be a world leader that's going to rise up. Um, He's going to be a leader from a, I'm sorry, it's going to start with a 10-nation confederacy, but as you're going to see from the, or it says from the book of Daniel, when we get there, we'll get there. But um, they're actually going to be a 10-nation confederacy in the last days, a world kingdom. And then another king is going to rise up, and he's going to defeat three of those 10. And so you're going to end up with eight, which is the new start number. Eight is the new start number. Anyway, this Antichrist is going to sign an agreement right where that first line of rapture is, a seven-year agreement with the nation of Israel. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone to make an agreement with the nation of Israel that's gonna last seven years exactly. If I hear that, I'm gonna perk up like this, it's possible that this is it. But in the middle of that tribulation, or that period, in the very middle, he's gonna break his agreement with Israel and start persecuting Christians. And so that whole seven-year period of tribulation is is recorded in chapters 6 and seven, basically, those two chapters. And, and this is where things don't get horrible yet, and this isn't, in a sense, even the judgment of God yet. This is just what happens when you got a bad person that's leading the world... And, and he's gonna declare himself to be God and he's gonna per- persecute Jews and any other people of faith. He's gonna persecute them. If we're here, Christians are here, he's gonna come after Christians after he comes after the Jews. It's gonna be a tough period of time. The tribulation and what's called the great tribulation. Now, that right after that, you've got that next line called rapture. And again, from a pre-wrath position, in other words, Jesus is gonna come back before God's wrath hits the world. In other words, we'll go through tribulation, but God will spare us from wrath, and the rapture would be there, and where I'd expect it in the book of Revelation would be at the end of chapter 7, which is exactly where I see a rapture event. Suddenly a host of people, innumerable host of people from every tribe and tongue and nation shows up in heaven at the end of Revelation chapter 7. Then things get really bad. So chapter 8 begins what's called the day of the Lord or the wrath of the Lamb. This is the beginning of the judgment on the world. And this is what we began to talk about last week. These are called the trumpets. Uh, The trumpet judgments of God are going to be... proclaimed on the world there, and this continues until chapter 11 when Jesus comes to reign, and then you have eternity after that. Now, the other chart, again, I want to point our attention to is one that I passed out last week, so I'm not sure where it would be in your notes, but this one here, and this is just a reminder, again, so that you can put everything in context. Numbers one through six there, I think represent, they could represent the current age Uh, They also could represent going into this tribulation period. Uh, One through six will last the whole seven years of the tribulation as well. Jesus said it's gonna be like birth pains, so things are gonna get worse and worse and worse. What were those things? Uh, What were those different uh, seals? And by the way, when we talk about seals, we're not talking about an animal. Um, These are, it's a scroll that gets unwound. With a there's a seal sealing it, and one by one Jesus unrolls these. Uh, the first one, of course, number one was false prophets, and including the antichrist. Number two was wars and rumors of wars. the The third seal had to do with famines and that type of thing, and pestilence. The fourth one had to do with death. The fifth one had to do with martyrdom, and so number five happens in the middle of the tribulation. That one's real clear. Number five there. Uh, number six was a sign in the heavens. So the sixth seal is a warning. And uh, there, there, the, uh, you're going to have the, the moon turning to blood. You're going to have uh, smoke and fire. A variety of things are happening, but there's signs in the heavens indicating that God's judgment is about to come. God's getting ready to warn the world in number six. Then you notice the seven at the top in that box there in the middle, of that other section, number seven. As I mentioned, uh, all of the trumpets are wrapped up in the seventh seal. And then all of the bowls of wrath are wrapped up in the seventh trumpet. And so you see one is inside the other, which is inside the other, which is why it makes it a little bit confusing So there'll be wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, all these other things. The Antichrist is going to be introduced. When you get to the fifth seal there, there's going to be persecution against Jews. And then Christians, number seven, is a sign in the heavens that God's judgment is about to come. And then it hits in number one of the trumpets, which we began to talk about last week where things get worse and worse and worse. The first trumpet was that a third of the earth was burned up. And so you can see that that's a lot worse than wars and rumors of wars, than pestilence, than the false prophets or whatever. When you get to that first trumpet, a third of the earth is burned up. That's just kind of a big deal. Second trumpet that we talked about last week, the sea is turned to blood. The third trumpet, a third of the waters are poisoned. these are the the rivers and the lakes. And so you realize it's not just the oceans that are gonna be impacted, a third of all the rivers, a third of all the streams are gonna be impacted. And then the fourth trumpet was a third of the lights in the heavens are darkened. The sun will not shine a third of the time, the moon will not shine a third of the time, Uh, the stars, Will fall from the heavens, but a third of them are going to fall from the heavens. You say, What is that all about? I mean, what's happening with those first four seals? This is the beginning of God's judgment on creation that's been scarred by sin. It's the beginning of starting over. It's kind of like what He did with um, the ark and with the water, how He flooded the world. The world had become so bad that God just Start it over. Well, that's kind of what's starting to happen here in terms of the judgment of God. Although all of this, I think, is intended to get the attention of people on the earth to say turn. Now, again, once you get that mark of the beast, you're stuck. But those first four have to do with God's judgment upon creation. And Paul talked about this in Romans 8, how all of creation is groaning and waiting for God to fix it all. It's not the way God intended it to be. And Peter talks about how there's gonna be a new heaven and new earth, and the old one's gonna be burned up so that we can get a brand new start. The first time it was with water, the second time it's going to be with fire. When we get to chapter nine, where we are tonight, then we get to the fifth trumpet in the judgment of God. And so why don't you follow along as I read in um, Revelation chapter nine and verse one, and we're gonna read about the fifth trumpet. Is everyone kind of following, or are we lost? Are you kind of following? You kind of see where we are with all of this? We're in this fifth trumpet, which is part of the seals and, and whatever. Okay, so the fifth one here, nine and verse one. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft of the abyss and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by smoke from the shaft. Now let me stop for a moment and let's talk about this one here. So this this fifth seal, it says a star fell from heaven Are we talking about a literal star or are we talking about something else? Well, I want to remind you that earlier in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, stars were angels. You remember how Jesus was holding the stars and the interpretation John gave is those were angels. And when you get to chapter 9 and verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2, it says, he opened the shaft. It's a person, a being that's doing this. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to to him. And what did he do? He opened it. He opened the shaft to this abyss. So so who is this? Well, to me, it's, it's fairly clear that it's an angelic being, and specifically it's Satan. And and I think this is the, the time in which Satan once and for all is being cast out of heaven, never to go up there again. Now maybe some of you thought, well, I thought he was already cast out. No, he has during the time of humanity had the ability, it seems, to access God the Father. You say, Well, how do you know that? Well, the book of Job, for example. Remember the story of Job, how it says this, the sons of God, reference to the angels, stood in the presence of God and they said, you know, have you considered Job? And there was a, a wager between the devil and God. And so you realize the devil was up there. He was given permission to access God. He had not yet been cast out of heaven. But what's happening in this fifth trumpet is that he's cast out of heaven and he's coming down here and things are gonna get worse because of his presence. Now, what does it say that he does? Well, it says that he, um, he opens up the abyss. Now, let me talk about just this a little bit, a reference that, for those of you that are taking notes, um, one reference you may wanna write down is Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 15. I think this is perhaps a reference to the same event in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, where we read the shining morning star, comma, and so it's a title, shining morning star. Of course, what is a star? It's an angel. Now, it's interesting because we're now in the Old Testament. It's using the same terminology. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You uh, destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself... I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit or the abyss. Now, that's where he's gonna end up, by the way. Now, what is the, the, the abyss or the pit there? It is a it's, like a, it's like a bottomless pit. There are a lot of theologians that believe that this is where some of the angels are today, that they're actually beneath us and, and in the realm of where the core of the earth is and where the fire is and everything else. Some believe that's where they are Uh, We can't say that for sure, but that kind of does look like what's happening here where the devil comes down and he opens up this this place that's called the abyss and he's going to let out some creatures that were locked down there. Now, Peter talks about this as well. He talks about people that were kind of locked away during the time of Noah. And they were put in this place. And, of course, you remember even when demons confronted Jesus, they said, it's not time for judgment to begin. You're not going to send us there. Don't send us to the abyss. And so there's this place where they are temporarily being held, very similar, by the way, to people who are temporarily being held in Hades. When, when people die, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, uh, they either went to Hades the place of the dead or Hades, or they went to paradise. Both were down there was the place of the dead. When Jesus rose again from the dead, he emptied paradise. So the Christians now, when we die, we go to be with him. Uh, The reason there was a temporary holding place in the Old Testament was that our sins had not yet been removed. Christ had not yet died and risen from the dead. So people's sins were covered over but not yet removed. But when Jesus rose from the dead, their sins were removed and half of the place of dead, Sheol, half of this place called Hades was emptied out and and the people went up to be with God so but the other half of humanity is in this place of the dead right now and in in a spiritual realm it appears there's also this place where these demonic beings are now let's read verse one again then i saw the angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss again that's a word that's uh, used of a, a bottomless pit or the depths of the sea it's sometimes used in that way my study Bible makes the point it's the prison of, for Satan and the demons. It was created for them. Uh, it says here he had the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized Oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead to Revelation chapter 20. Let's look at the end of the story. I wondered why I was reading. Revelation 20, at the end of the story, this is the end of what's gonna happen here. Revelation 20 and verse one, he says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss. Okay, it sounds similar to the other story, a different angel. And a great chain was in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, And bound him for a thousand years, he threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he could no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time." So what I believe is gonna happen is that Satan is gonna be cast out of heaven, he is gonna open up this abyss, and as we're gonna see in a minute, a bunch of these creatures are gonna come out of the abyss. When you get to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 20, you find another angel with a big chain, and he's gonna grab Satan, bind him, and throw him in the pit, close the door, and seal it up and put a seal on it so that no one can tamper with it for a 1,000 years. Now, at the end of the 1,000 years, by the way, there's going to be one last battle. Satan's going to be released one last time. He's going to rally the entire world against Jesus for a final battle. But that doesn't happen until the end. So in verse 2, again, going back to Revelation 9, he opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like the smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft which even that in itself would be quite remarkable. You realize so much smoke is coming out that the world is is a smoky place. Continuing in verse three now. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. Find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them, so this fifth trumpet is is kind of a scary thing. These beings it says are released from this pit, and it describes them in kind of an interesting way. It describes them as being kind of like scorpions they 're described as being locusts, of course, but i don 't think they 're regular locusts. You remember that John is describing things the best that he could describe it based on what He could compare it with, but these creatures are coming out, but they're clearly not regular locusts because they don't touch anything that's growing. That's that's not their assignment. They they, they don't eat green grass or the trees or whatever. What do they do? Well, their assignment is to sting people who do not have God's mark on their foreheads. So who are those people that don't have the mark on their forehead. Well, it's everyone but the Jews at this point. We're gone at this point. No matter what, I'd say we're gone. So who's left? Well, we read in chapter seven that God was gonna mark 144,000 Jewish people. They are the ones that are gonna have a mark on their forehead showing that they belong to God and these creatures that come out of this abyss are not allowed to touch them. Now, I think this is significant uh, for a few reasons. Number one, as I've said before, that the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism related to the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And some of what we're reading here, some of the things that are happening here in the book of Revelation should immediately cause your mind to go to the plagues. And how God sent various plagues, remember how things got really dark at one point where the where people couldn't see. There was this unearthly darkness upon the whole land, so, so the, dark, the sun was darkened. Doesn't that sound familiar with something we've read already? There, are these, the, the, there were the locusts that came. The, the, uh, do you remember how the, blood, or the water turned to blood, how Moses went and he touched the water and it turned to blood? What is this starting to look like? I mean, this is starting to look a little bit to me like it's a repeat of the book of Exodus and... I want to remind you that in the book of Exodus, the specific plagues that God used were an indictment against the gods of the Egyptians. And so part of what God is doing here is he's beginning to judge the gods of the peoples. You know, Now, <clears throat> what was interesting about the plagues in the book of Exodus is that the first few plagues hit both the Jews and the non-Jews. They hit the Egyptians and the Jews. But at a certain point, something changed. At a certain point, God said, now, from now on, the plagues are only going to be on the Egyptians so that you will know that I am favoring the Jews. These are my people. Now, I'm suggesting here today that in the book of Revelation, this is what God is beginning to do. He's beginning to reestablish the Jewish people as his people over whom he's going to reign. Now, let me demonstrate that this was indeed the case if you're saying, well, I don't remember how the Jewish people had to face any of the plagues. It's found in Exodus chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, if you're, if you're taking notes. This was Moses confronting Pharaoh He said, but if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, excuse me, so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, Yahweh, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. And this is what God did then with the remaining signs. He did not judge the Jewish nation like he did the Egyptians. Well, this is what's unfolding here in this story. And so you've got this Jewish remnant, 144,000 that have the mark of God on their forehead, and they are being protected from this particular plague, which is going to be a wonderful thing, but it's intended to be a sign, where the world is supposed to take notice and saying, what is it about them that these creatures are not bothering anyone that's Jewish? And it's God being able or beginning to, to sound out um, that the Jewish nation is separate. Now, I want to note this also, that I mentioned a moment ago, that the first four trumpet judgments had to do with judgment on the world. When you get to this fifth one now, it's the judgment on humanity. God is beginning to judge people. Let's continue reading now in verse 7 of Revelation 9. The appearance of the locusts was like horses equipped for battle. Something like gold crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates, the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that with their tails, they had power to harm people for five months. <clears throat> now, let me stop here. Last week, I mentioned something about the fact that there was some evidence out there that maybe, maybe this rapture event was gonna happen 50 days before the end of the seven-year period. I probably shouldn't have thrown that out there because I think this is the verse I was thinking about. It's not 50 days, it's five months. This says that these creatures are gonna be attacking people for five months and we're already gone. So we know that this event, this rapture event, if it doesn't happen at the beginning, we know that it can't happen any later than this five-month period because we are gone. And again, I'm I'm suggesting that it happens in chapter 7 before any of this begins to unfold. What's interesting about this five months is that it's the only place where length of time is actually mentioned in the whole story, where this particular timeline there, it says, well, this is gonna happen for, for five months. Now, these creatures have the ability to torment, but they don't have the ability to kill. And then it goes on to say, people will want death, but it'll flee from them. Some have suggested that this suggests they're not, they won't even be allowed to take, or able to take their own lives. That God's gonna somehow keep them supernaturally alive. I don't know if that's true or not, but these creatures are merely sent to torment people and it will not be fun. Any of you ever been bitten by a scorpion? I have a friend that was, it was no fun. (laughs) The odd thing, she went down to Honduras with a group from our church. Everybody was told, check your shoes in the morning. Don't just stick your feet in the shoes. <laughs> and she did. And there was a scorpion in there, not to scare anyone from going to Honduras, but uh, they, it hurts. And these creatures are gonna sting. Now, what are these? Well, verse 11 says, they had as their king the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. The word Abaddon can be translated destroyer, It's the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead or the grave, or it can be translated destruction. It's all the same thing. This name Abaddon, again, I think we're talking about Satan here, and since he's called the king of these, we can assume that these are demonic beings that are reserved in this place of judgment for this hour, for what's going to happen during this hour. So it's going to be a very, very scary time, uh, and we know right now that where they're coming from is indeed this devilish place or the home of, of evil spirits and demons. That's what the, the word abyss, that's what it refers to, the place where they're, in, in, they're kept for the time being. And once again, later on, they'll be kept down there again. Uh, Peter wrote about this, by the way, in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, and I referred to this earlier, how Peter talked about some beings that have been kept away. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4 For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus, which is a a place of divine punishment, or it's a reference to a place of divine punishment under the world. If those angels who sinned were thrown down to this place, but delivered, and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, then it goes on to say, then he's able to protect Christians. From harm. But it shows that back with the flood, you remember there's a story in Genesis chapter 6 about an, an, an unholy union that was taking place, it seems, between angels and people. And angels had violated their realm and come down to the earth, and they were cast into this place when God redid everything through the flood. He started over. The angels that had violated their realm were sent to this place, and this could be. What these are now the demons here described as having crowns that's a picture of authority or ruling they have the face of a man which is a picture of um, their intelligence they have the hair of a woman long hair which suggests that they were attractive some have suggested at the same time and they had teeth like a lion suggesting they're ferocious it says they have breastplates like warriors and you can't kill them their wings sound like chariots and horses in battle, and then of course their tails are like scorpions. So this would be kind of a, a scary scene. Continuing to the next verse, Revelation 9:12, we read, "The first woe has passed. There are two more woes to come after this. The word "woe" is a um, word of warning, isn't it? Like somebody's getting too close to the edge, and mom says, "Whoa!" Uh, This is the first woe. This is the first warning that more is coming. You think, well, this was bad enough, but more things are coming. And so we come now to the sixth trumpet in verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the gold altar. There's the number four, so you can look up the significance. At the four horns of the gold altar that are before God, I heard a voice say, To the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So an announcement is made with this sixth trumpet. Release these four angels that are bound in this particular place where Euphrates is now. Again, this should trigger in your mind Genesis because when you go to the Garden of Eden, you realize it's located in between Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This is the place of creation. And apparently there are four angels that are temporarily bound there that need to be released. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, so the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a, a third of, human, of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard the number. Now, when I was uh, growing up, people suggested that this represented actually the nation of China, which at the time boasted an army of 100 million. And so they were suggesting that this is a human army, but as we'll see in the next verse, there's nothing human about this. You got the one group that were released from the abyss, and now we have a second group, an army of these demons. I think they're demons. Look at the description in verse 17. It says, this is how I saw the horses in my vision. The horsemen had breastplates that were fiery red." inks, blue and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads and from their mouths came smoke. I'm sorry, my screen just went blank. From their mouth came smoke. Read it up there. Okay. Uh, smoke, fire, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. Again, I think these are demonic creatures. We're talking, probably when this happens, of close to 3 billion people. This is the beginning of the judgment on humanity. Continuing in verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads, and they inflict injury with them." Which, by the way, can you imagine John looking at this? <laughs> he's trying to describe, it's a horse, but its head's like a, a lion there, and, and smoke comes out of its mouth like a, like, like a dragon, and its tail, it's like a bunch of snakes, you know? And this, this really, and he's trying to describe what he's seeing here, but I, again, I think these are demonic creatures. Verse 20, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues, and this is the amazing thing to me, did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons in idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood which are not able to see, hear, or talk, and they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I find this incredibly remarkable. God has begun to judge the world, but I don't see anybody being humbled by what's happening. Which, by the way, just a side note, I think when things are happening in our world that are very significant, like maybe the coronavirus, it should humble us. It should cause us to just stop and wonder. It should cause us to pray. It should cause us to ask the question, are the things you're trying to get our attention about? Because many times I think that's what it is. And so we come to the end here of that. And when we get to the next chapter, we're going to see how the story continues with the seventh trumpet. So I want to open it up for questions. I've been trying to go for 45 minutes and then open it up for questions and not blab the whole hour so uh and yeah we have microphones here so i'll try to see it, again it's a, i know it's a, it's kind of a scary scenario i'm thankful we're not here i think it's literal though i mean people want to symbolize these things but i think it's liber- literal i think this is exactly what's going to happen the way it's depicted okay go ahead
1: uh, i'm just curious about genesis chapter 11 and Romans chapter nine, and Okay. Revelations are these intertwined in any way? Um, 11, remind me 11, about Genesis eleven. That's Babylon and the Tower. Of okay,
0: Babylon. yes, yeah, and then yeah. So, um, uh, Lord willing, I want to get into that in in the fall. So I want okay. to push it down there. But I am convinced that all of this is this this. Um, scene of the Tower of Babel is being replaced, replayed in the book of Revelation. It's this. It's the same thing that's going to be happening in the book of Revelation. Humankind back in Genesis tried to build a tower to heaven to their own glory and to rule humanity apart from God. They tried to create a civilization apart from God. And that's the first Babylon. And then you fast forward to the book of Daniel where you read about Babylon and when you read about Daniel and Babylon, it's all prophetic. And then you get to the book of Revelation. And I used to think that Babylon in the book of Revelation was simply uh, symbolic. I'm not so sure. I think it might be a revival of the ancient Babylonian empire that focused on the deity of humanity, 666. So I think it's all connected. I think it's the alternate system opposing God.
1: Well, in it, it, one one follow-up, then Romans chapter nine, Paul refers to predestination. Yeah, God's, yeah, the, the branch plan.
0: that was pulled off and then grafted in. Yeah, yeah. So, what did you wonder about that?
1: Well, it just they just seem he seems to be tying back to Genesis and God's plan, and because the question in chapter nine was the fact that the Jews. And yeah, what about he, the Jews? Abraham, God? Abraham's covenant, yeah, and, and the promises, and and everything. the Romans, I guess, were asking him why were they not saved? Um, maybe I'm misreading something here.
0: Uh, well, what's happening in Romans nine and ten is that Paul is making the case that the Jewish nation was God's chosen people, and they rejected God or they rejected Jesus. And the Gentiles, or non-Jews, were grafted into this tree. It's called, it's described as a tree. And so that the gospel went to Gentiles and Jews. And so the church in the New Testament is primarily Gentile. But what he makes the point about in Revelation 9, or I'm sorry, Romans 9 and 10, is that, that one, if, if this, the Gentiles were kind of proud about it. They were saying, well, listen, you, you Jews blew it and we've been grafted in and we're kind of a big deal. And Paul makes the point, if it was easy to graft in you into the Jewish tree, it's easy enough to pull you back again. It's gonna, it's gonna go back to the Jewish nation. All the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Jewish nation are gonna be fulfilled one day. And so they're going to be grafted back in, is my point, that that God's attention is going to be turned to the 144,000 and all the promises in the entire Old Testament are going to be fulfilled in Christ as he rules. And and it'll be the season of the uh, Jews. Right now we're in the times of the Gentiles. But uh, the day's going to come again where it's going to be the time of the Jews again. And before it was the time of the Jews, Abraham and his descendants. So it's going to flip back again. And in Revelation, I think bears that out. So, okay. I don't know if that answered. Is that answered, kind of? Okay. Hi. Is
1: okay. is the rapture of the church and the second coming, second coming of Jesus Christ, two separate events?
0: Yes. Uh, or I should say yes and no. <laughs> to be clear. Uh, the, the second coming of Christ, there's a word, a Greek word that's used, parousia. It, it's the coming of Christ, the word coming. It does not refer to a point in time, but a season of time. Let me try to explain what I mean by this. You could say that grandma's coming, and that could refer to the arrival of grandma. That's an event called the rapture. Or you can talk about Grandma's coming, and she's going to be with you for a month. And when we talk about the second coming of Christ, it involves this, it's more than just a moment in time. It's a reference to, I think, the season of time in which Jesus Christ is going to be declared the king, and he's going to be, begin ruling toward the end of the seven-year period, and then he's going to rule for 1,000 years. So that's, the, that's called the second coming, Part of the second coming is an event called the rapture. So the rapture fits into that, but it's not the same thing as the second coming. The second coming is Christ coming to not just arrive, but coming to reign for a 1,000 years. That's the second coming. The rapture is this other event where we are caught up. Of course, that's what the, the word means, to be caught up, to be with Jesus, and I think to reign with Jesus in the millennial kingdom, but they're two separate things. So...
1: So when is the battle of Armageddon?
0: Okay, uh, I read two battles in scripture, but the official battle of Armageddon, I used to believe was at the end of the seven-year period. I thought that was the battle of Armageddon. But just last week, I was reading Ezekiel again, and I realized, no, it's, that battle is the last battle that takes place at the end of the, end of the millennial kingdom. Now when Jesus first comes, when he arrives on the scene with us, which is described in Revelation 19, he says he comes on a horse, and when he, he first arrives, um, there's going to be a, a, a kind of a battle. I hardly call it a battle because the enemies can all line up to battle, and Jesus is going to say, we're done. <laughs> it's like it's a one-sided battle, like it's all done already, you know? and we're part of it. So, um, but the, I think the Battle of Armageddon is at the end now of the 1,000 year period, so. All right, any other questions? Pastor Tim? Yeah, oh, there we will
1: just do it that way. Um, I've been taught ever since I was little about- You were taught world. wrong,
0: no. Uh, I probably was. <laughs> I'm children
1: will automatically be raptured when we are, so the children will not be okay, here during yeah. this time.
0: Yeah. A lot of people think that, and there'd be, a, there'd be some kind of a case for that. I mean, that gets into the same question. If, a, if a, a baby dies or a child dies, will that child go to heaven? And there's evidence in the Bible that the child will. For example, one of the passages is when David lost his son to Bathsheba, he said, I will go to you, but you won't come to me. He knew that his son would not rise again from the dead, but he knew he'd see his son again. One day and so he certainly believed that one day he would see his son. and there are a lot of people that believe there is indeed an age of accountability, and that you know, when the rapture happens, that the, the whole family unit would go up f- for people at a certain age. I mean, we don't know what the cutoff would be. I think in the, from the Jewish mindset, it was after the age of 12, I think so So maybe someone can correct that. Is it 12? I'm looking for my messianic uh, Okay, I think it's twelve. Okay, good. Yep. So when there was Lucifer flew, uh, kicked out oh, a third of the heavens, like the angels, and then in the trumpets, there's like a third of creation that's completely uh, judged, and then a third of the humanity, like yeah. from the fourth trumpet or one through four, and then the fifth trumpet, is there like significance? with that, because even like if you look at the Trinity, like Jesus of the Trinity of the third, he was like crucified, so like it's always like a third of the yeah. judgment. Yeah, there, there probably is, there probably is, although the event you're referring to when it, you're, I think you're looking in, in Isaiah, I'm trying to think of it, it, was I think it's Isaiah, where it talks about how a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. Um, There's a question whether that's this event we just read about in Revelation or if that's what happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When they initially rebelled, a lot of Christians believe that a third of the angels followed Satan, two-thirds stuck with God. Uh, and, and, and that's probably about right. That's probably about right. Now again, what's happening with this abyss being opened up and all these demons, I think these are ones that are kept for that hour. A third probably is significant though and it is meant to, to get people's attention but of course as we read at the last part of the chapter there, they, people didn't repent even though it happened at the end of nine. So, hey. That's it, okay. All right, well any others? One last one, we're done. Yeah, I keep hoping Jesus will come back before I have to finish here, but it's, it's not happened yet. Oh, is there one more? Okay, one last question. here Did you have a question? No. 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 Oh, okay. Nope, that's it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer then. Uh, Lord, we again just continue to ask you for insight and wisdom. We do acknowledge you, Lord, that you are holy and just in everything you do. When we look at some of these things, I I know that a skeptical world would look at this and say that no loving God could do such things. And yet I look at it, and I think how for 6,000 years you've been putting up with so much. And how you've given opportunity after opportunity for people to turn, and they don't. And they rebel against you until there's just no excuse left. We just acknowledge you as, as being right and holy and just. And Lord, we ask you that you'd use these things to motivate us in terms of righteous living, but also in terms of even uh, spreading the good news of Christ to a lost world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Right next week, chapter 10.